You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. May your heart be light. Next year, all our troubles will be out of sight. (laughs) Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Make the Yuletide gay. Next year, all our troubles will be miles away. Once again, as in olden days, happy golden days of yore, faithful friends who are dear to us will be near to us once more. Someday soon, we all will be together if the fates allow. Until then, we'll just have to muddle through somehow. So have yourself a merry little Christmas now. How are we doing this morning? Good? Good. Well, I am a sucker for Christmas through and through, and in our family, we actually celebrate Christmas. I know this is going to be one of the most controversial statements I can make this morning. We celebrate Christmas November 1st. Anybody else? Hey, okay. We just divided the room. I am so sorry. One minute into the sermon and everyone is against each other. Yeah, that's for us. In our family, when November 1st rolls around, we get the Spotify playlist. We start playing music. And I just love, love, love Christmas music. I love all the cheesy ones. And I especially love this song because it captures within it just some of the melancholy and tension that comes with Christmas. That underneath the veneer of Christmas that we recognize We still go through troubles, and we still have to trudge through it somehow, that we recognize there's brokenness, and it feels like in the Christmas season, just all the more we become aware of it. And oftentimes, rather than it being a discipline to just set our hopes on Advent, on Jesus, so often we can just make it a spiritual distraction of just put on a happy face and just go through the motions, and yes, life is hard, but hey, it's Christmas, so just try your hardest and make it through. So Christmas, for a lot of us, becomes this strange dynamic of both happy and heartache. For many, Christmas is this bittersweet reminder of what you wish was true, or you're reminded perhaps of those you've lost and those you've loved, this nagging feeling like you just have to muddle through somehow. Or just look around you. I mean, just watch the news for five minutes, and it just feels like we're constantly berated with story after story of just grief and suffering in the world. And Christmas especially, we just feel this need to just say, give us a break for once. Just give us some good news. And what we're longing for deep within our souls, and what I would argue the entire world, what we are all longing for is something to just fix all of the problems that we feel both going on in us and out there. So with that in mind, let's look at Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Now, as I read this passage, this is going to be one of those classic Christmas passages that if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, or if you haven't been around church, you're familiar enough with this passage because you live 
in America and you celebrate Christmas. This is one of those verses that you just kind of absorb through osmosis, just like you were to uh, celebrate Christmas by watching Home Alone or uh, eating Christmas cookies. It's just like, and we also hear this verse all the time. But what I want us to do this morning is really to unpack it and see that there's actually a lot of sadness and a lot of tragedy underneath the surface of this text, and at the same time, there's also a lot of hope. So read with me. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So all right, this is a very unique story of Jesus's origin. But first, we have to understand what the betrothal period looks like according to verse 18. In Jewish tradition, the betrothal period of a marriage was in a lot of ways like legal engagement. So yes, by law, they were considered married, but functionally, legally, it looked a lot like engagement. So they were not allowed to live together. They were not allowed to sleep together, let alone they weren't even allowed to be in a room alone together during this first year, during this betrothal period. Also, what you need to know is back then, this was a strong group culture. So decisions were made through the lens of not what's going to be best for me, the individual. The decision was made, what's going to be best for my community? What's going to be best for the collective? What decisions can I make that would honor the values and traditions of my family? So with that in mind, often your mom and dad were the ones who picked out your spouse for you. Which for many of us, me included, that would freak me out to know that your parents were the ones picking out your spouse for you. Not only that, in that background, Mary and Joseph, based on Jewish tradition, were more than likely teenagers at the time. Mary was probably 13 or 14 years old. So I have a daughter, Caroline, she's five. And that just freaks me out to think, yeah, and eight years later, she would be in Jewish tradition, eligible for marriage. That freaks me out. Joseph was just a little bit older. He was 16 or 17 in order to work his job for a few years, in order to save up to be able to provide financially for his family. As well, men were traditionally a couple years older in order to save up and pay a dowry to the bride's family before they could be engaged. It was a way of signifying that he was going to be the type of man to financially provide for his family. So all of that information in mind, let's look again back at verse 18. It says, before they came together, so before they slept together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. All right, let's stop right there. I don't know if your parents ever gave you the talk growing up. Chances are they probably did not start out with, so when a man and a woman really love each other, the Holy Spirit gets the woman pregnant. (laughs) No one ever had a talk like that ever. But I want us to just step into Mary's shoes for a moment. We have in another gospel account in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 1, an angel shows up to Mary and says, Hey, the Savior of the world, you are going to give birth to him. You are going to be the mother of the Son of God. And in Luke chapter 1, Mary busts out in song and praise and worship saying, This is amazing! This is incredible. God has chosen me to give birth to the Savior of the world. This is literally the best news I could have ever received. And just whenever you receive good news like that, your immediate reaction is you just want to tell people, right? 
But let's step into Mary's shoes for just a moment. Imagine she's excited, she wants to tell people, and then things start to slow down, and reality starts to set in, and she's thinking, oh no, what are people going to think of this? I'm a virgin, and I'm pregnant with God's baby. No one's going to believe me. Not only that, oh no, what are people going to think of me? A 13-year-old who's engaged and pregnant and telling people she's a virgin. The assumption is going to be that she slept with someone prior to being married, and now, in that hyper-religious community, she's going to be treated with a lot of shame and disgrace and disgust. It's going to be hanging over her head, not just during the pregnancy, but for the rest of her life. And then she starts thinking, oh no, what is Joseph going to think about all of this? So imagine this scene playing out that Mary is mustering up the nerve to talk to Joseph. And maybe their parents, their families, they're all getting together, hanging out over dinner or something. And Mary says to Joseph, hey, Joseph, can, can you and I talk for a minute alone? And I imagine what's going on in David's mind or in Joseph's mind to think, whoa, alone? Okay, with me? Oh, gosh, all right. Man, is this going to be my first time holding hands with a woman? <laughs> is this, oh my goodness. So imagine they, they sneak into a room and Joseph's checking his breath. Maybe he's getting the Purell out or something. Maybe he pulls that awkward teenage move that guys do where they just put their hand maybe right here and just edge their hand closer to her hand to just, you know, see what happens. But then Mary says, hey, Joseph, there's, there's something I need to tell you. All right, Mary, what is it? So I'm pregnant. What? Who? Who was it? Who was it? Was it Steve down the road? I see the way you two look at each other. Was it Steve? No, no, no. And here, this is the thing. Um, I'm pregnant with God's baby. Excuse me? Yeah, yeah. I'm still a virgin, and I'm pregnant with God's baby. Joseph's reaction is probably thinking, gosh, mom, dad, seriously, of all the people you could have picked for me in this town, you picked Mary. But no, what's his reaction? We see this in verse 19. It says, her husband Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So the assumption is, why divorce her? Well, first century Jews, while they believed in the supernatural, they were not superstitious. Joseph is engaged to Mary, and now she's pregnant. He knows how biology works. Joseph initially does not believe her. His assumption is Mary has slept with someone and doesn't want to face the shame of owning up to it. So she's making up this lie that she's a virgin. Now, we know how the story ends, but just think for a moment. How would you have believed her? Would you have believed her initially? What proof would you have needed to believe her? That's where we find Joseph. And I think it's so easy to assume in 2019 that people back then were just really gullible. Anything miraculous that happened, they just attributed it all to the supernatural. But when you look at Joseph's story, his reaction is the same that ours would be. One of skepticism and doubt and questioning. In fact, when you look throughout the New Testament over and over again, you see Jesus' followers constantly uh, having this characteristic of skepticism 
and doubt and questioning. No one believes it off the first go around. They need evidence. They need proof. And this is where we find Joseph. Now, in this culture, adultery was considered a capital crime. Any sex outside of marriage and in the betrothal period was considered adultery. So in Joseph's day, if you wanted, he could have held a public trial against her. And if she was found guilty, she, he would get his dowry back in return, which means this could have been a very lucrative financial opportunity for Joseph. He's 17. He's got his whole life ahead of him. But we see in verse 19, it says that he resolves to divorce her quietly. We see implied in the verse Joseph's character shining through just a little bit. He absolutely says no to the public trial. He says no to the finger pointing. He wants to do this quietly. He doesn't want to make this any worse for Mary. So he just wants to get out of the marriage and keep his honor still intact. Verse 20. But as he considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. The angel is essentially saying, Joseph, I know what this looks like. Yes, Joseph, I know what you're thinking. It's right for you to draw up that conclusion. But what I want to tell you is she is telling you the truth. She is actually with child. She is pregnant from the Holy Spirit. You need to believe her. Trust her. The angel goes on to say in verse 21, She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, growing up in this culture, if you're a first century Jew and you're reading this narrative, the name Jesus is loaded with a lot of meaning. And for us, growing up in a Christian, post-Christian culture, we think, okay, Jesus, you know, big deal, whatever. But to a first century Jew, there was lots of meaning tied to the name Jesus. So the name Jesus in the Greek New Testament is pronounced Jesus. Jesus was the Greek pronunciation of the Hebrew name Yahshua. It was two Hebrew words put together. It was Yahweh, meaning God, and Yasha, meaning saves. So those two words get shortened, smashed together. You have Yahshua. In Hebrew, the name Yahshua is the Old Testament character who we know in our English Bibles as, any guesses? Joshua. That's right. Joshua was Israel's leader after Moses passed away. Joshua was this military leader who led the people out of the Exodus into the promised land and in so doing crushed all enemies that opposed God's people so that they could settle in the promised land once and for all. So if you're a first century Jew and you hear that the Son of God is named Jesus, your mind instantly starts thinking back to the Old Testament thinking Joshua, thinking, oh man, this is the guy. This is the guy who's going to liberate us, who's going to save us. Right now we are in Roman captivity, and this is going to be the guy, Jesus, who is going to save us, who's going to crush our enemies and bring about his kingdom once and for all. But notice in verse 21, the angel actually adds another little bit to his name. It says, Jesus will save his people from their sins. Notice the angel doesn't say Jesus will save people from Roman captivity. He doesn't say Jesus will save his people from oppression and persecution. No, the angel implies that 
Roman captivity is not the biggest problem. The biggest problem to be dealt with is the captivity to sin. And this is the same for you and us, and that that is really difficult to believe, that with all the problems facing us in our world, the biggest problem really at the end of it all is the problem of sin. Part of the reason why that is really hard to believe is that us living in the secular West are descendants of the Enlightenment era, The Enlightenment era was during the 1700s, lots of philosophers and thinkers really thinking through what does it mean to be human and what is is humanity at the end of it all. And part of the Enlightenment was this philosophy that all of us are born with a blank slate, that all of us from the moment of our birth are inherently good and only capable of doing good. And the reason why evil and suffering is in the world is because of bad institutions and bad environments. Maybe it's the parents that you had or the culture you were brought up into or this political leader or this or that. The problem with the world is not with me. The problem is out there. And when we look at scripture, we find that there is some truth and there is some fiction to that. The truth is every human being is made in the image of God. So we are capable of truth and love and beauty, and every human being has dignity and value and worth because you have the fingerprints of God marked on you. But at the same time, we are also a mixed bag that we find when we look within that we have competing desires, we have conflicting thoughts, that our moral compass within us is busted and broken. So yes, we are made in the image of God, but we were designed to love God, to know God fully, perfectly, to know and to love others, other image bearers of God, to know them and to love them selflessly, sacrificially, perfectly. And yet we all fall short of that standard. That is in large part what sin is about, failing to live up according to the standard that God has designed for you by being an image bearer. At the same time, theologians talk about how all of us have within us this inward curve to to serve and to love ourselves. So to be made in the image of God initially was to love and to serve other people, but we have this inward curve to love and to serve ourselves. The British social critic Malcolm Muggridge says that sin is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time, the most intellectually resisted fact. In other words, we recognize the effects of sin. We recognize that sin sin harms other people, but we'd rather point the finger anywhere else but us. But the main problem in the world is not external, it's internal. Now, all that to say, yes, there are a lot of external problems in the world, and followers of Jesus, should that should grieve us, that should break us to our core. But the main problem in the world, ultimately, is the human heart. We are, in the words of the New Testament authors, enslaved by or held captive to our sin, and it manifests itself in a number of ways. Number one, we are held captive to sin's guilt, Captive to sin's guilt, sin is doing and wanting things I shouldn't and not doing or wanting the things that I should. It's action and it's desire. So we fall short of our moral standards all the time. 
So if you are a follower of Jesus, you recognize that, that we fall short of the moral standards in Scripture. But even if you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, all of us have this moral compass within us. All of us have a moral standard, and we all fall short of that moral standard. For example, we will say, yes, of course, it is bad to lie. It is bad to lie because it severs friendships, it destroys trust, but when something comes up that we want to get out of, what is the knee-jerk reaction? The knee-jerk reaction, that's right, is to lie. Lies will be the first thing that pops into our mouths. We'll say it's wrong to lose your temper on others, but the second you've had a long, long day of work and you just get home and you want to relax and the kids are just losing their minds, what is the knee-jerk reaction? I'm speaking hypothetically, of course. (laughs) The knee-jerk reaction is to get really, really angry. Or let's say you're a college student and you come home from a long day of studying in school and you get home and the dishes your, your roommate has gifted you with loads and loads of dirty dishes in the sink. What is the response? Anger and rage. We would all say, yes, absolutely. It's wrong to be unfaithful to your spouse. When our eyes have the opportunity, they'll glance longer than they should. We can't escape it. We fall short of our own moral standards within. We are held captive to sin's guilt, but it gets even deeper than that. Number two, we're held captive to sin's power. That it seems no matter how hard you try, no matter how much effort you put forth, you just can't seem to be the person you know you ought to be. Even when you try to stop, you can't. For some of us in this room, perhaps it shows up by feeling like you're too far gone. You've done too much. That God possibly couldn't love someone like you after all that you have done. That at Life Group, it just feels like you're saying the same thing week after week, over and over and over again. Thinking, how could I have done this? Thinking, I can't possibly change. And what's the point of even trying? We are held captive to sin's power. For some of you, it's not even necessarily the sins that you've committed. It's the sins that have been committed against you. So you walk around feeling like there are parts of you that are totally irredeemable, unforgivable, unhealable. You bring that with you with your identity because you're captive to sin's power. And thirdly, we're held captive to sin and its false promises. We're captive to sin's false promises promises. So then we have this feeling of brokenness and we think we can chase after things that we think will ultimately satisfy us and complete us. And we do that with so many things, with relationships, with careers, with kids, with marriage, with reputation, with the salary, thinking if I just had this, if I just had a little more of this here and that here, then my life will be complete. Then I'll have satisfaction. And honestly, I think during the Christmas season, more than anything, we experience this. Have you ever thought about how much stock we put into the holiday season? Like if I just had the perfect Christmas experience, things would go well for me. If I just went to the right party with the right people at the right places and watched this and ate that, uh, then my holiday would be perfect and complete and I would be content to my very soul. But if any of those things go off, then things are completely ruined. Now, of course, none of us would ever think that overtly, but genuinely, this is subtle. During the Christmas season, we all put a lot of emotional stock into this, right? 
Or if I, this pressure that I have to give my kids the best presents and the best experiences, subtly you're thinking so that I can be validated as a parent, to be validated that I'm doing a good job. And if not, then their whole childhood is ruined. Their whole Christmas season is ruined. And listen, I'm all about Black Friday and getting a good deal and saving money, but there was one ad I was it was brought to my attention recently. The ad said something to the effect of, why spend time with your family when you can fight with a stranger over a TV? <laughs> this idea, if I just had more stuff, if I had this, if I had that, then my life would be complete. Now again, of course, none of us are thinking that overtly, but man, we put so much emotional stock into the Christmas season. And what that reveals is in a lot of ways, we are putting our contentment in the false promises that Christmas can often offer. And on and on it goes. And we're left thinking and saying to ourselves, next year will be better. Next year will be better. On and on it goes. And sin just has this death grip over us. But the good news of Matthew 1 says that Jesus will save his people from their sins. Jesus will save his people from their sins. So the announcement of Jesus' birth was not one of well-wishing, and it wasn't one of sentimentality. It was a declaration of war. That King Jesus, from the moment of his birth, was on the move. He was on this rescue mission to save his people from their sins once and for all. The biggest enemy to be dealt with is sin and death. Jesus, from the moment of his birth, the king was on the move. So how's he going to do it? How's he going to rescue us from sin's captivity over us? Keep reading with me. Verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son and called his name Jesus. Jesus is going to save his people, according to verse 23, by becoming Emmanuel. By doing that, we see that sin in us is the biggest problem. God with us is the solution. Sin in us, it's the biggest problem. God with us is the only solution. Sin created this chasm between us and God, but through Jesus's birth and life and death and resurrection, he's paid for our sin and draws near to us to be God with us. By calling him Emmanuel, Matthew is showing us the kind of person King Jesus is going to be. He is a God who enters into this world to be with you. To enter into your brokenness. To enter into the darkness of humanity. To be with you. To enter the loneliness and the suffering of the cross the agony and the isolation of his crucifixion, all to be with you. Because that's the very thing, more than anything else in the world, that is the very thing your soul needs. God with you. You need to experience his presence, his peace. You need to experience the love of, your, of God in your life more than anything else. If you want to find peace in the midst of whatever you're going through, you need to experience his presence. 
Some of you know exactly what this is like, and I've gone through this too whenever like, I've been in the doctor's office and they give you literally the worst news possible, or you get that phone call by a family member and it's like, goodness, what's, what is happening? Like, Whatever I have entered into unimaginable pain, how do people best show their love to you? By being with you, by being near you. People's presence and their proximity in your life helps you get through it. Maybe they shoot you a text, hey, I love you, and I'm thinking about you, and let me know how I can care for you and serve you. Whatever you need, just let me know. Or maybe they show up to your house and just drop a meal off at your doorstep just to let, them know, just to let you know, hey, I love you, and I care for you. Maybe they come over your house and they just want to hear you externally process how you're feeling, how you're coping with all of this. Maybe they just want to put their arm around you and say, hey, this, this is terrible. And I want you to know I'm with you and I love you and I care for you and I'm not going anywhere. Having those type of people in your life who are with you, they are shouldering the pain with you to remind you you're not alone. You're not alone in this. They want to bear this with you. They want to bear the pain with you. And this is what Jesus does for us by becoming Emmanuel. Jesus reminds us over and over and over again how much he loves us. That God loves us and and cares for us and delights in us and sympathizes with us. He is patient with us and he gives us good news. And like a loving father, he picks you up and puts his arms around you and says, it's okay, I love you. I'm not going anywhere, I promise. You have my word. I'm not going anywhere. I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. I'm here with you no matter what. That is Emmanuel. That is God with us. So then the good news of Christmas, it's not about hiding what you're going through. It's not about suppressing your sadness. It's about God with you. It's not distracting yourselves with all of these things going on in the Christmas season, just going along with the crowd. It's God with you. God who sympathizes with you where you are, a God who sees you, a God who sees you down to your very core, who sees all the deepest, darkest recesses of your soul, who sees all the sin you have ever done and will ever do, and he doesn't look away, and he doesn't scoff, and he doesn't frown his face, but instead he draws near even closer to say, I love you and I'm here with you no matter what. Followers of Jesus, for those who follow Jesus, this is Jesus to you in your pain, in your anxiety, depression, and loneliness to remind yourselves God is with you. He is with you. Maybe you're here this morning and you're just experiencing so much anxiety. Maybe just one financial strain after another constantly piling up and you just feel absolutely overwhelmed. Or maybe you're here and you're a college student this morning and you have finals coming up and you're just feeling all of the pressure just being buried underneath it all. In the midst of all of that, God wants to remind you right now, he is with you. He's with you. Maybe this morning you're feeling the loss of a relationship. You feel the loneliness trying to creep in. God kneels down to you where you are and says, I'm with you. I'm with you. If you're feeling this morning depression and darkness setting in and nothing seems to be giving you joy, God actually enters into your darkness, into your darkness to say, I'm not going anywhere. I'm with you. 
Tim Keller in his book, Hidden Christmas, says, Christianity says, God has been all the places you have been. He's been in the darkness you are in now and more. And therefore, you can trust him. You can rely on him because he knows and he has the power to comfort and strengthen and bring you through. So our application for this morning is going to be really simple. I just want you to just consider a couple of questions. Number one, where do you need saving? Where do you need saving? Where do you need the rescue of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with you to save you from your sins? Maybe there's a sin you've been living in longer than you care to remember. Maybe you had recently an unexpected failure that has just been brought up to the forefront of your life and it's all you can think about. Your mind is consumed by it. Maybe it's a sin that's been done to you that you've been carrying around and you need healing from. Where do you need saving? And second question, where do you need comfort? Where do you need comfort today? Where do you need to experience the presence and the proximity of God with us? Because he has the comfort you're longing for. He has the strength that you need. He's God with you. And the good news is, if we get this, when we get this, when we live this out, that God is with us, we can actually be with other people in a real tangible way to be the embodiment of Jesus to them. In a lot of ways, this is how Joseph's story ends here in Matthew. Because he knows the truth that's coming. God with us, he can be with Mary. He can stay married to her. And in so doing, he's going to experience all the shame and disgrace and dishonor that Mary is going to experience. He's going to experience that too. And he's able to endure it for the long haul because he knows the promise of God with us is coming. And the same is true for us. That's why we do our Serve the City partnerships every single year, to be with people, to step into their vulnerability, to sympathize with those that society might otherwise cast out. We step in and we be with them. We give them our presence and our proximity, and we bless and we serve and we love, expecting nothing in return, because that's what Jesus does for us. He is with us. So then during this Christmas season, for those who are followers of Jesus, let's not make this a time of distraction, but one of discipline and of hope to remind ourselves Jesus is good news for us and he is good news for the world. He is with us and because of that, we can be with others in a real, meaningful, tangible way. And when we do that, we bring God's kingdom here to Columbia bit by bit. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the good news of you coming into the world that you will save your people from their sin. That you being born into the world was just the first step. The first step of living the perfect life we never could, dying the death that we deserve to raise again, reconciling us to you and to God the Father once and for all, making us family together. God, we ask that we experience this morning for those who have their hope in you, that we would experience the truth of God with us, to experience your peace, your presence, 
your love, and in so doing, that that overflows into loving and serving other people to be with them the way you have designed your family to work. We pray this all in your name. Amen.